Good morning again. You know, it's great to be back today. I was out last weekend. I got to preach at New Anthem Church in Park City. It was, uh, it was really a joy. It was wonderful to be with. It's like our extended family, our sister church, a church that this church helped plant nearly 10 years ago. Uh, so there was a lot of joy that morning, even though I missed this place. And uh, Landon got to preach here, and uh, I know he did a wonderful job and got a lot of great feedback. We, we both got such great feedback about the experience. We're like, I guess we need to do this again. I didn't, I didn't know your people were sick of you and my people were sick of me, but <laughs> we just, we'll just switch again. I mean, it works. Um, but it was great. I came here, got to be on the tail end of the Amigo meal, which I'm so glad. You know, we, we raised more money than we did last year by $1,000, which was so exciting. Uh, just to give that gift to them is such a joy. It's, it is more blessed to give than receive, and, and that's really exciting. And then I didn't have anything to do the rest of the day except watch the Super Bowl. So that was super fun. Did you guys watch it? Yeah. Yeah, us and our 100 million friends got to watch the Super Bowl. And uh, I, I do remember there was one moment of watching the game that a question came to mind, and it was this. Are the refs Eagles fans? Is that, was that the right call? I mean, yeah. And you know what's great about technology now is they have video cameras placed in different per, uh, positions in order to see a play from different perspectives. And the reason why they have multiple refs is also so that they can be at different vantage points so that they can see the play and make the right call. And uh, it's called perspective. Perspective. Perspective is important. A definition of perspective is a particular attitude towards something or a way of regarding something. Put simply, a point of view. Perspective is a point of view. And do you know you can have the wrong perspective? I mean, everyone that's around me, when they disagree with me, I know they have the wrong perspective. I mean, I don't know about you. Uh, I, I looked up synonyms for the word perspective. Uh, here's a few of them. Outlook, viewpoint, position, stance, angle, like the angle that you see something. Slant, that's one of my favorites, slant. Attitude. Frame of mind, approach, and my favorite synonym for perspective, interpretation. Interpretation. You know, perspective is vital if we're going to know the truth and make the best decisions. And in the Bible, there are three perspectives. There's more than that, but there are at least three perspectives that are mentioned throughout Scripture that are important for us to understand the truth. Three perspectives, and all three of them are beautifully present and demonstrated in one story in the Bible. Now, they're demonstrated in other places, of course, and we're glad for that, but there's one interaction that demonstrates three different perspectives in the Scripture, and we're going to look at that this morning. I want to read through the story because it's kind of a long story, and if you're not familiar with it, I just want you to know the, the Bible passage before we kind of, you know, dissect it, before we piece it apart. 
uh, I want you to hear the story, and I want you to imagine that all the characters in the story, all of them, have multiple perspectives on different things. And there's three perspectives in particular that we're going to be thinking about this morning, and that is the perspective of God. What's your perspective on God, on Jesus? The perspective you have on people around you? How do you perceive them? What's your angle? What's your slant? What's your point of view? What's your frame of mind, your attitude toward them? And then, probably the centerpiece of this story, not that it's more important than your perception of Jesus, but this, this is what hits home in the story. What is your perception of your own sin? I'll call it debt. What is your frame of mind and your understanding of your own debt? So those are the three perceptions, uh, perspectives, sorry, not perceptions, perspectives that I'm going to go through uh, this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 7 and verse 36. I'm going to read through the story and then we'll, we'll go walk through it uh, once again, noting the perspectives within the story. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to come eat with him. Why? Why would he want Jesus to eat with him? Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner, what does that mean? I mean, isn't everybody a sinner? Why, why is it written that way? A woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume. What is that? What is an alabaster jar of perfume, if we're to translate it into our day? So she brings an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. What kind of custom is this? Does this usually happen? What does this mean? When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, Say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other... 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, hmm, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he said to him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. 
But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Three perspectives. A perspective of your own sin, your debt, perspective of God, and perspective of others. You know, I've read this story to my kids. If, you, if you're not familiar with me, I have five kids, ages 12, 10, 7, 5, 5. I have two twins at the, at the end. We decided to, you know, go, go big or go home. And so, so we just went home. That's, that's all that means. Uh, but I shared this story with them. It's kind of a long story, so I got to read it through, kind of like a little devotional time together. And I read the story, and I asked my older three kids. Remember, they're 12, 10, and 7. And I mean, they're, 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 you know, they're gifted, so they're, you know, more than your kids. But they're just, you know, 12, 10, and, and 7. That's what every parent says. Um, 12, 10, and 7. And I read the story, and I, I asked them. I said, now, what, who, who do you relate to in the story? And they're like, Simon. Simon? The Pharisee? Yeah, Simon. I said, oh, well, why do you resonate with him? And they're like, well, uh, and I said, he's kind of the bad guy, isn't he? Why do, you, why do you relate to him? And they're like, no, he's not the bad guy. I said, oh, oh, he's not? No, he's not the bad guy. He just missed it. He just didn't get it. And my 10-year-old is like, you know, Dad, sometimes we miss it. And I want to be like, yes, we do. We do miss it. Like, <laughs> I, I, I saw it going a different way. I had to tell them the truth. I had to be like, you know, I, I always feel like I, I really relate to the woman in the story. And my seven-year-old daughter, who is a daddy's girl, says, well, that's kind of arrogant, isn't it? <laughs> what? What? No. And... I'm telling you, it was humbling. That, that conversation did not go like I thought it was going to go. And it was refreshing, although humbling, to hear them relate to the story and say, you know what? This guy, he missed it. And he did. They were right. And my kids didn't want to look at him as the bad guy. You know what's so ironic about that? One of the main teachings, one of the main doctrine found in this story is to not look at the other person like the enemy. And I missed it. And I learned it from my kids. It was so great. It was such a beautiful moment. So now I'm ready to preach it to you. So uh, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray because we're going to walk back through it. If you're taking notes, uh, the outline is just the three perspectives. It, and you just notice it throughout the story. It's not chronological. It's, it's very, it's, you see the different perspectives in every moment. But I'm going to pray, and, and you're welcome to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we want the right perspective. We want your perspective. We want to understand the truth. We want to look at one another. We want to look at ourselves. We want to look at you as we ought. And so we pray, would you humble our hearts and allow us to see the truth in this story. Thank you for the way you treated that woman. I'm sure I'll meet her one day, but I'd, I thank you for not treating sinners as we deserve. You are so good to us. 
And we pray that you would uh, make this truth, uh, that you would make our hearts like good soil, that we would receive it. And this truth would bear root, fruit in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, back in verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. It's Jesus that's inviting him. And we don't know why he's inviting him. Um, there, is a couple, there are a couple of options of why a Pharisee in a town would invite Jesus to speak to him. One of the big ones that a lot of people would understand is Jesus at this point in his ministry is famous. He's been performing miracles. He's been preaching and teaching. At this stage of his ministry, he, a lot of people have heard about Jesus. And so he's somewhat famous. So a guy like Simon, this Pharisee, don't get him mixed up with Simon Peter, Simon the disciple. That's not the same person. Simon was a common name in their day. So this is a different Simon. He's a Pharisee. Likely he lives near Capernaum or maybe Nain. That's around the chronology of the story. It's not exact. It's hard to know, but it's around that Galilean ministry area. And so he's in this place and uh, this guy invites him. Likely he's inviting him because the Pharisees at this point in Jesus's ministry were suspicious of Jesus and wanted to catch him in a mistake. They wanted to catch him in a lie. You know, Jesus was so famous at this point, his preaching they wanted to get rid of this preacher. They wanted other people to not like him because the world did not accept Jesus when he came. They were not for what he was for because he came truly with a heavenly perspective that they did not understand. And so this Pharisee, Simon, is likely just wanting to catch him. He's curious. He's interested. And you can tell a little bit about that because of the lack of hospitality he shows Jesus throughout the story. So he invites Jesus over, and Jesus comes in, and he reclines at the table. Now, don't imagine Simon's house like your house. This is not a 21st century modern home. This is a Middle Eastern, first century home. So this Pharisee Simon probably had like a, 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 nice, a nicer type home, but his table wouldn't necessarily be inside his house. A lot of times they had a courtyard. Imagine it's like a porch and a patio area in front of their house. There would be a gate that you would come in. There would be the courtyard, which they would have. We think of it as furniture, but there would be furniture-type stuff. There would be a, a, a very uh, simple awning-type thing, uh, not made of stone. It wouldn't have lasted, so you don't see those uh, in, in our archaeology, but he would have a yawning of some, an awning of some sort, and, uh, and then that's where the table would be. So Jesus comes in. He probably doesn't go into the inner part of his house. He's probably in the courtyard, this big table, this dining table, and it wasn't a table like our tables. This, is, uh, this table was short. It was close to the ground. Uh, it's called a triclinium. It's, it's not like the tables where you, have a, you sit down at. You have to relax and lean over. Most people leaned on their left side to use their right hand, and so Jesus was likely leaning on his left. He was there reclining. That's why they say recline and not sit. He's leaning at this table, and he comes in, and there's no hospitality shown to him, we find out. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. And it was easy for her to find out. It's not like a mystery secret. It's not like people wouldn't know. Again, the courtyard was somewhat public, and people would want to know, oh, the famous Jesus, who's he eating with? He's eating with Simon. Let's go check him out. And so multiple people, which you read later in the story, there's others present there at the table. There's others around the table in the courtyard. 
So she finds out Jesus is going to be there. Now, we also learn from the story that she has already met Jesus. She has already had an encounter with Jesus because later Jesus says the reason why she came, the reason that she's acting in such a way is because she has been forgiven much. So at some point before this, this woman, who's a sinner, and I'll explain that, this woman has had an encounter with Jesus and has been forgiven of her sins. She feels the forgiveness. Now, Luke is this gospel writer. If you know the history of Luke, Luke's a historian. He's a doctor. Um, You know, he's pretty smart. The way he writes this language, the way he writes this gospel is very chronological. It's very detailed. He uses more colors and things like that than anyone else. He also writes more about women than the other three gospels. So Luke has a favor toward women in his story. And in this story, he uses what we would think of as a euphemism, of saying, now there was a woman in the town who was a sinner. Now that's in English that we have, a woman in the town. In this language, it's a town sinner. That's how it's, how it's constructed. This is a city woman, a woman of the night. We don't know exactly what her sins are, but the impression is uh, she's a woman that uh, gets paid to be with people. That's the kind of impression that it is. She's that kind of woman. She hears about Jesus eating at this guy's house. She's already had an encounter with him, and she comes. She brought, verse 37, and she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, if her occupation is what we think it might be, perfume is her main way for business. That's how she gains clients. And alabaster is really neat. If you don't know what alabaster is, alabaster is not the perfume. Alabaster is a rock. It's a mineral. It's very soft. It's easily, it's pliable. You can carve it really well. And so alabaster was used for smaller projects or statues or sometimes like we think of it as pictures. They make it out of alabaster because alabaster stone is beautiful. It's a little translucent. That means a little light comes through. So if you have a jar um, and the sunlight comes in, it looks like it has dark brown veins. You can see pictures of it online if you want. Uh, When we went to Israel, the church in uh, one of the churches in Jerusalem, there's a church called the Church of All Nations. On the outside, it has these beautiful parts of the the outer side made of alabaster and the light comes through and if you're inside the church you could see it it's not stained glass but it's like that made out of stone it's beautiful and it's expensive and it's fragile anything that's very fragile and beautiful and it takes time to carve and make it artistic is considered valuable when this lady brings this alabaster jar what she is bringing is the most valuable monetary physical thing that she owns. Likely one of the few things that really belong to her. And it's filled with expensive perfume. So that's what this woman brings. And she stood behind him at his feet. Now, remember, a triclinium, this lower table. Jesus' feet is resting behind him. I don't want to do it up here because it looks awkward, but you know... Like, imagine I was laying on the ground and my feet were behind me. That's, that, it's, she's not underneath the table at his feet, like our table and our chairs. Don't have that picture. She's behind him and she starts crying, really crying. She has this moment of, again, it's about forgiveness. She feels so forgiven that she can't stop weeping. She's a sinful woman. 
she's made a lot of bad decisions in her life. She's got a bad reputation. But this man has forgiven her of everything. And it brings her to tears. So many tears that she could wash Jesus' feet with them. You know how many tears it takes to wash some nasty, dirty feet? That's a lot of tears. I mean, in their day, your guest, your, your host should bring you a small basin. They had so many different um, amounts. They're all homemade. So we don't know how much water would normally be used, but it's at least about a quarter of a gallon. There's a water in a basin that you would give to your guests so they could wash their feet. It wasn't a ton. Like we would want to use three gallons of water and you replace it every time because we're rich and we don't live in the desert. Back then it was different. So they would reuse some of those, that rinsing water. Well, anyway, he gets no water from his, his host. And she starts weeping, and her, her tears are hitting his feet. And she kneels down, and she starts taking the dirt and the stuff off of his feet. And then she, she wiped his feet with her hair. Now, for the average Jewish woman, it is not customary to let down your hair in public. It's, it's wrong. It's considered wrong. Actually, still in the Middle East, there's lots of places where this, it's not the same exact rule, but it kind of stems from that. It's the same cultural idea. She had to let down her hair, had to get her hair out so that she can start wiping his feet, getting that water, her tears, and the dirt off of his feet. And remember, his, his feet are dirty. I mean, in the Middle East, if you're walking along the roads, there's all kinds of stuff on the roads. They didn't have plumbing and ditches and stuff like we do. There was no sewers like we're, we're used to. D floors, uh, the dirt path was dirty. Your feet were very dirty. And she starts wiping those feet with her hair. Now, I want you to imagine this. What is her perspective about who Jesus is? What is he worth to her? What does he mean to her? She starts kissing them and anointing them with perfume. This was not a normal custom. You don't kiss feet. Feet are dirty. Even for you, most of you think feet are gross, right? Imagine these kind of feet that have been outside with sandals, not closed shoes. She starts kissing his feet out of adoration, love, appreciation. You know, true worship comes from a heart that has been changed by grace, not a heart filled with pride, not a heart that's like, well, I'm okay. This was a true heart of humility, of God has forgiven me. And so she's, she washes her, his feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair. Her perspective about Jesus is he's worth all of this. Then verse 39 when the Pharisee who, invited, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet... Now, let me just stop you right there. The way that this is written, um, this is written in such a way that it means it, it's not possible that he's a prophet. Uh, to, nerd, to be a little nerdy with you for a moment, in the language that this is written in, there are four classes of conditional sentences, conditional statements. There's one where you could say, instead of the word if, you use the word since. You could be like, since he's a prophet, this is going to happen. That's a conditional statement. It's not a right now it's happening. It's, hey, since this is true, then this. There's a second way of doing it to where you say, 
if this were really true, which it's not, then this would happen, which it's not going to happen, and it's not true because he's really not that. That's this second-class conditional sentence, if, you, if you're curious about that kind of So we know that this prophet is saying, or this, sorry, this Pharisee, Simon, is saying, this man is not a prophet, and he doesn't realize who this woman is. This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. What's his perspective about Jesus? What does he think about Jesus? And on top of that, what does he think about her? What does he think about the woman? You know, his thought of a prophet would, a prophet wouldn't let this sinful, dirty woman touch him because if she touches him, he's unclean. You don't want to be going around with this kind of person. You can't have them touch you. And so he's thinking to himself, she wouldn't do it. You know what else is really cool in this story? He doesn't just say if he knew who she was, does he? He says to himself, if this man were truly a prophet, he would know who and what kind. You see how he's exposed? You know, it's not kind to divide people into kinds. That's called judgment. That's called bias. If, if, if he knew, he only saw her as a sinner. He only saw her for what she did. You know, when you view people through the lens of their failures, by definition, you have a faulty picture. If you only see people for what they are, based on what they've done, you will never see them for who they are. And if you, see, if you, if you don't see someone as a who, you will treat them as a what. And that's what the Pharisee did. He was looking at her through the lens of what she did wrong. His perspective was skewed because he only saw her through her sin. That's the only way he knew how to treat her and see her. He was cynical. He was critical. He was judgmental. He thought he was better than she was because of what she had done. So a question that this raises is, how do we view the people around us? How do you, what's your perspective on the people around you? Do you have a filter, a lens in which you see people only from one thing they did, maybe? Maybe it's a couple things they did. Maybe they're in your life right now. You have loved ones or you have people in your family. Every time you think of them, the way that you think of them is what kind of person they are, not who they are. Maybe there's someone in your life, the reason why it's hard for you to love them is because you only see them as a what. And it's based on something they've done wrong. Jesus replied to him, which this is ironic. So this guy thinks Jesus is not a prophet. Jesus is about to show how prophet he is by knowing what Simon was thinking to himself. Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. Now, I don't know the tone. I wasn't there. But I don't think Simon was like, oh, you have something to tell me? Please tell me more. I'm just an open book with you. I just want to learn all that you can tell me. I doubt he had that kind of attitude. The way that the picture, the way that the scripture demonstrates it is, I could imagine Simon there like, hmm, well, say it, teacher. Notice he won't call him a prophet. 
That's what, that has been the reputation around town. This is a prophet. He's like John the Baptist. This guy speaks for God. He speaks the truth. We need to hear him. Simon doesn't think so. So he calls him a rabbi. There's tons of rabbis. There's bad rabbis all around. This doesn't mean he's honoring him. It's kind of like, say it, rabbi. Go ahead. If you got something good to say, I'll see. I'll see if I like what you say. I'll determine if what you're saying is really worth learning. Say it, teacher. Jesus says, a creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. Now, let's think about this parable. This is Jesus' way of preaching and teaching about this interaction. So this parable is important for us to understand if we're going to understand the woman and Simon and Jesus. You won't be able to understand the story because this is Jesus' way of saying, let me preach to you what this interaction just meant. There's a creditor, and we know the creditor is God. There's a creditor, and he had two debtors. You know what? These two debtors had different debt. One owed 500 denarii. Now, a denarius uh, is worth about a day's wage, so it's like 500 days wage. The other one, just 50. It's one-tenth of that, 50 days wages. Now, you can't translate into that into our day because 21st century economics do not fit 1st century economics. So you can't imagine, ooh, uh, 500 denarii, 500 days, how much is that worth to me? How much is that? Is that 68 to 100,000 in Kansas because the average hourly wage is $17 and the, the, the number of days worked in an average year is 260? You can't do that math. That doesn't work for the story. That's not God's intention for you to try to translate this into our economy. The point is, the guy who owed 500 denarii, that is so much money. That is like infinity money for him. He's never going to pay that off if he's a servant. If he's a servant trying to pay this creditor, do you know in their economy, you worked each day to eat that day. There wasn't like we, they don't live like we live. Uh, their week was that, if you had anything saved up, your food didn't last very long. They didn't have refrigerators and freezers and all this stuff. So you have to put yourself into the culture and understand what he's saying. It's almost impossible to pay this debt back. And he says it, in his next sentence, he says, since they could not pay it back. And that's the point of the parable. They could not pay it back. They could not pay the creditor. These two debtors could not pay their debt. And that's talking about the perspective of our sin. The debt is our sin in this parable. You can't pay the wage of your sin. As a matter of fact, if you think you can foot the bill, you're missing it. Now, I want you to just consider this for a moment. This Pharisee was a good religious guy. He's a good guy. But his perspective on his own debt is, it's not as bad as hers. And if it's not as bad as hers, it's not that bad. And if it's not that bad, I'm not that bad. And if I'm not that bad, I'm better than she is. I'm better than them. You see how the perspective of your own debt changes everything? 
It changes the way you look at other people. It changes the way you look at God. You, you, the reason why this woman treated Jesus this way is not just because her perspective on Jesus. Jesus makes it plain. It's because she's been forgiven much. It's because of her perspective of her own sin and that Jesus forgave that sin. That is what drives her love and affection toward him. Since they could not pay it back, and there's two words used here. This isn't one word. He graciously forgave them both. He graciously forgave them. They didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. How do you view your own sin? How do you view your righteousness? How do you view how much you owe God? I, I didn't share this first service, but we have so much more time than they did. So I'm going to share this with you. Um, when I was a teenager, wrongly, sadly, I hate that this is true about me. I hated my own mother. Uh, she had an affair. She messed up. My parents divorced. We lived in a horrible situation. I was abused multiple times in different ways. I hated my upbringing. And uh, at one point as a young teenager, I hated my own mother, uh, which is wrong. doesn't matter what she did to me, but I did. And that was really hard for me to deal with. And um, it wasn't until I was older. I got saved at 16, and my mind started changing about things. God started changing me, sanctification, you know. And then when I was 18, I went off to college in a faraway land called Mississippi. And I go to this place, and everybody loves their mom. And everybody's great. And everybody went to Sunday school and did Bible drill and Awana, and they know all the stories. And Jonah was eaten by a big fish, and it wasn't necessarily a whale, because I know the stories. And all these things. I knew nothing. I knew nada. That's nothing in Spanish. Or swimming, too. It's both. Anyway, I knew nada. So I feel insecure, and I'm learning all this. And uh, I started reading for, through the Bible for the first time. I loved it. I couldn't get enough of it. it was, I could have eaten it. I just wanted to eat the Bible. I wanted, it, I wanted every story in the Bible to be so ingrained in my heart that I couldn't make one decision without something in the Scripture saying, this is the way you ought to go. And uh, anyway, I read about forgiveness, and I read about this woman. And I thought, man... The, the point of the story is this woman is in no more debt than the Pharisee. They both can't pay, right? It didn't take any more blood from Jesus' body to pay for her sin and his sin. And a theology about sin, I love theology because it helps us understand God. Do you know that my sin against God is worse than anything anyone has ever done to me, and it doesn't matter what they did to me. My sin against God is worse than what Hitler did to other people. My sin against God. Because he's holy and infinite, and you, you don't measure sin like we do in our own minds, our limited thinking. We think of sins, comparable sins. We think, well, my sin's not as bad as that sin, and we think wrongly about it. That's not how God sees it. God's perspective on sin is, if you, according to James chapter 2, if you've broken one law, you're guilty of the entire law. You are a lawbreaker, and you deserve the just penalty of your sins. And the wages of sin is death. It's separation. It's physical death. It's spiritual death. We are debtors. We are sinners. 
And I realized that my sin was worse against God than anything my mom or any of my abusers ever did to me. And I remember reading the story and thinking, I am the Pharisee. I think I don't realize how much I've been forgiven. What's wrong with me? I'm in debt that I could never pay. I don't have more debt than she does. How do you view your own sin? He says about the woman, anyway, I'll finish the story, sorry. So, so which of them will love him more? Jesus asked Simon, who's going to love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You've judged correctly. That wasn't a hard question. This wasn't a brain buster. This was easy. Of course the one who got forgiven more. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon. Now, this is so important. He doesn't look at Simon. Right? Put yourself in that courtyard. He's not looking at Simon. You know who he's looking at? The woman. You want to know why? Because he's better than we are. He turns toward the woman and says to Simon, Do you see this woman? The best question of this whole thing. Do you really see this woman? Because you know what? The whole point of the story is Simon did not see the woman. Not for who she was. Not with God's eyes. Not with the right perspective. Now, he also didn't see his own sin correctly and he didn't see Jesus correctly, but he for sure couldn't see the woman. It says Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. That was customary. Simon the Pharisee washed his feet every single day. This was cut. You would, you would give your guest a, a little basin of water. Here, if you didn't have your servant clean his feet, you would, I mean, even if you're familiar with someone, like you're a kid in the family, you went to someone's house before a meal and you got the basin and you rinsed your own feet. Everyone washed your feet. Simon was very disrespectful and put off by Jesus in a way that he didn't even give him water for his feet. This was customary. It was like he was saying, you're not going to be here long. You're not that important. Let's just get to business. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. Her perspective about who Jesus was and what her, who, about her sin drew her to this. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. It was customary to give kisses like on the cheek to people that you welcome in. It was a sign, a sign of honor and hospitality. It was normal. Why wouldn't the Pharisee be like this? Because his perspective about Jesus and himself and his sin was skewed. He didn't see Jesus for what he really was, and he couldn't see himself for what he really was. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Olive oil, it was like their makeup of the day. They, you know, if you lived in the desert and you were dry and crusty and rusty every time you came in, just the culture that they had, they would give each other olive oil you would put on your face. When you go to a meal, you don't want to look like you just ran a marathon, you know. Sure, you live in the desert, but you want to be presentable and you want your skin to take a break. So it would be customary to give your guest some olive oil for their face. It's like makeup lotion type stuff, their, their crusty, rusty, sun-ridden face. And so you'd give it to them because that's the right thing to do. And Jesus is like, you wouldn't even do that. 
cheap olive oil. Olive oil was so common in their day, they used it for lamps, they used it for healings, they used it for medicine, they used it for lotion. They used it every day, all day, all the time. Olive oil was everywhere. But that perfume, that was special. That was not as common. And Jesus says, you wouldn't even go as far to give me olive oil, which is customary, and she has anointed my feet with this costly perfume. Verse 47, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. She knows how much she's been forgiven. What is your perspective on your own sin? on your wrongs. Stop thinking about hers. Stop thinking about theirs. What is your perspective on your own sin? That is going to determine real worship in your life. Whether you can see Jesus for who he really is and whether you can see other people the way that God sees them. Those who have been forgiven much love much. Those who have been forgiven little love little. You know what's crazy? This Pharisee needed just as much forgiveness as the woman. He just didn't know it. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. It's like he wanted her to know. Jesus wanted this sinful woman that gets no good attention at least He wanted to look at her, turn to her, and say, your sins are forgiven. Just in case she started questioning whether, because she didn't belong in this story, right? She doesn't belong at this Pharisee's (laughs) courtyard. She is an outsider. She's an imposter. She should have never been there. He wanted her to know, your sins are forgiven. Then verse 49, those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, remember, this is a courtyard. There are lots of people here. They, man, they, they began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? Which is the other great question in the story. You know who Jesus is? He's the only one that can forgive us of our sins. And that's for all of us in this room. There's a good chance that someone in this room has never been forgiven of their sins. There's only one way for you to be forgiven, and that's through Jesus. He actually tells her, he turns to her and said to the woman, he doesn't comment to these other guys saying, who is Jesus? He can forgive sins. In verse 50, he says, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Just so there's no mistake, it's not the perfume. It's not that you went as far to humble yourself to kiss my feet. It's not even that. You know what saves you? Faith. Putting your trust and belief in Jesus, the only one that can forgive you of your sins. You can't do enough righteousness to be forgiven. You need to place your faith in Jesus. Repent and believe. Turn from your sins. Realize this is not right. This is wrong. I deserve death for this. I deserve punishment. I'm putting my faith in Jesus. He's the only one that can forgive me. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Peace is what the people around us need. It's what we need. What is your perspective on your own sin, on who Jesus is 
and on others. Because the others out there, we need to go to them and show them this great love so that they can know, understand forgiveness. That Jesus died and he offers freely a gift. It is a gift, a gift if people would receive it. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the way that you treated this woman. It's so vital for us to understand the truth about our own sin, that we have a debt that we cannot pay, and only you can graciously forgive us. We are like the Pharisee and the sinful woman. We need your forgiveness and we pray that you would use us to show that forgiveness and love. What you offer to this woman, would you empower us through your spirit? Would you open the door for your word as Paul prayed? Would you use us to be your hands and feet that other people would come to know you, the real you, the one who forgives sinners? We love you because you first loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.